Downtown and Business will be talking about regeneration once again when we host our second annual Property Planning and Regeneration Conference in February 2023. We'll be heading to the Burlington Hotel in Birmingham, focusing on priority issues for the property industry, including the levelling up agenda, net zero, planning laws, housing development, high streets, infrastructure and partnerships. Among our contributors are the Chief Executives of Salford, Coventry, Newcastle and Wolverhampton City Councils, the leaders from Birmingham, Leeds and Manchester and the Chief Executive of the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority. We'll have national politicians speaking to us as well, including the godfather of regeneration, that's Lord Michael Heseltine. To book your tickets for this event, which takes place, I remind you, on the 9th of February, 2023, in Birmingham, visit all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Get your tickets today for what is going to be another fantastic downtown event. Welcome to the latest episode of the Downtown Den podcast with me, Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. In this episode, I'm talking to Chrissy Wolf. Chrissy is an award-winning solicitor, entrepreneur, careers coach, and business consultant who's been breaking boundaries in the professional service sector for many years. She launched a YouTube channel back in 2017, and her brand, Lord and Broader, as a way to improve accessibility to the profession for aspiring lawyers. She's since built up a major following of over 80,000 followers across her social media platforms and is a regular guest lecturer and speaker at national and global events. Chrissy was also crowned Woman of the Year 2019 at our City of Birmingham Business Awards, and I'm delighted that she'll be joining us for our Change Makers Live event in Liverpool in 2023. Have a listen as Chrissy and I discuss her being an early adopter of social media, her personal branding and how she built that up, building an online community, finding content that interests an audience, dealing with trolls, uh, the Gen Z attitude to work and the great resignation, uh, alternative models to traditional law and consulting, uh, being a Commonwealth Games commentator and her love of Birmingham. Much more besides in this fascinating conversation. Hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did having the chat with Chrissy Wolf. Okay, welcome to episode five, the latest series of the Downtown Den podcast. And I'm joined today by a guest who was with us. We've just been chatting offline back in March 2020, just before lockdown, I went over to Birmingham. Um, this very talented, energetic, ubiquitous Brummy entrepreneur or Brummy-based entrepreneur uh, was somebody I was introduced to uh, by a number of people in the city. They said, you've got to meet this girl. She's fantastic. She's dead cool. She's doing lots of different things in professional services sector. Um, and she became, was named, voted, as Birmingham Businesswoman of the Year back in 2019 um, at uh, the City of Birmingham Business Awards, which Downtown hosted. So I'm delighted 
that Chrissy Walker's back with us in the den. Uh, good day to you, Chrissy. How are you? Hello, that was a very kind introduction, and I cannot believe it was March 2020, right before we went into the abyss, and it didn't seem like it was on the horizon then at all. I remember really clearly us shooting in that room in, is it Brontwood, I think? I can't remember. It was, yeah. Yeah, and it just felt like, you know, we had no idea what was about to happen, but thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be back, and things have changed quite a lot since then uh, in my life, in the world in the world of business. So it's going to be quite a different episode, I think, this one. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say to listeners, if they want to know about uh, your sort of career background, then go back to episode six or episode seven of the Downtown Den podcast, and you'll hear that interview with Chrissy. Uh, But life has moved on for for all of us, and certainly for you. And uh, I would describe you now as a, a business consultant for... Uh, professional services, the owner, of course, of Law & Broader, which is a fantastic uh, brand that you've built during the last couple of years, uh, and I would suggest a big social media influencer as well. So explain to our listeners um, how you uh, would describe those eclectic range of activities that you get involved in. Thank you. Yes, it's not an easy one when people say, so what do you do at a networking event? That (laughs) takes some time to formulate in my mind. And I usually say it differently every time because there's so many different hats that I wear at the moment. It it all stems centrally from me being a lawyer. That is my practice area. That's my core, really, of what I am. I'm a lawyer and I spent the first eight and a half years of my professional career at a large national law firm, which I was still working at last time we spoke back in 2020, a medical negligence lawyer um, for, for a large firm. And everything changed during the pandemic. Whilst I was working at that law firm, I had also set up Law and Broader, which started life as a YouTube channel, which I thought was going to be a fairly innocuous part-time thing, just giving a little bit of advice to students about how I managed to break into law. And that spiraled beyond where I could have ever imagined it going into various other social media platforms, coaching, mentoring, public speaking that I and I was running that alongside being a practicing solicitor at a large firm. And then during the pandemic, everything changed for everyone. And I actually decided when my office finally closed, the law firm that I was working for, they closed they closed the office space. We were still running as a business. But once I got the memo to say no more office time, I actually upped and, and went to a different country, went over to Dubai and explored life over there, which was very different, uh, almost normal, in all honesty. Just as a as a change of scenery, I didn't know anyone there. No, no real incentive other than getting out of the UK, which was obviously in a very bad state by the end of 2020. And it was during that period, really, that my online business really built up. I started contributing a lot more on LinkedIn, on various different social media platforms. And through that, I got a number of inquiries from other companies for a range of business services, really, which I had always just sort of parked and said, no, thanks very much, but I'm actually a solicitor at this large national firm. And as you know, working for a large business, you can't just sort of pick up other bits of random work. That's that's not how it works when you work for a large corporate entity. But I started to get the bug and put these things together, all these projects I really wanted to do and sounded really interesting. And I looked at it and sort of, you know, added it up back of a fag packet. You know, could I actually make a living out of this? 
Uh, and that's really what happened. And I decided to take the plunge and become a consultant. So I suppose mine was a bit of a backwards story in that I sort of built the business around the work that I had. A lot of people decide to start a business and then they start advertising for clients. I sort of had these clients coming in through social media and thought, hmm, maybe I'll build a business around this. And so that's that's really what happened. So it's twofold, really, my consultancy business. So I consult for mainly for law firms and legal businesses as that's sort of the main audience I have although it's sort of branched out now because I think law is a lot more pervasive it used to kind of operate in a silo and lawyers are very separate from the rest of the professional services community but actually we're integrated a lot more in various levels of, of business and areas of business so I, I do consult for other types of pressure business as well but it's it's mainly law firms who approach me for a range of things a lot of what I do at the moment is I'm focusing a lot on culture and particularly sort of attraction and retention of talent, particularly junior talent, which I know is on everyone's agenda at the moment. And we're probably going to get into that in a, in a bit about sort of the great resignation and what's happened to the world of work in the last couple of years. That's sort of a lot of the business consultancy I'm doing. I'm still a consultant solicitor as well. So I'm a specialist medical negligence, cosmetic surgery lawyer, in fact. So that's my main area of practice. And then I also have the Law, law and broader, which is effectively a social media based enterprise, which is, is part personal brand, I suppose. And then also part really what I what I use to sort of market my services and and you know create lead gen uh, and I do also do a lot of brand deals and collaborations through my social media channels as well uh, and off the back of that I get a lot of public speaking so every week looks different it's some sort of patchwork of various different types of consultancy and various different types of social media so that's uh, in, in a nutshell a very large nutshell what what I, what I get up to. No it sounds fantastic in terms of the way you've been able to carve out a career, basically through the things that you really love and enjoy doing. That'd be a fair summary, I think, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I think I just had a passion and I went with it and I carried on showing up every day on social media and, and talking about lots of things that I was passionate about. A lot of it was completely outside of my practice area of law. It was things that I noticed about the community, things that I noticed about the profession, other professions, personal life. Uh, so I wasn't always talking on social media about, you know, professional issues, if you, if you see what I mean. Uh, and and I just kept showing up because I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the conversations that sparked off the back of the things that I was talking about. And those conversations led to people who I'm now doing business with. So I suppose that's sort of the, the you know, the, the natural organic story of of where social media leads because a hundred percent of my of my work comes through social media now, even though a lot of my clients are people that I now know in person. Uh, all of them I initially met through social media. So I suppose that's the that's the success story of how you can really use social media to your advantage in some ways. But again, that was never, I'd love to say that was a strategy all along. And I had this big long-term plan for building this empire off the back of LinkedIn or YouTube. Uh, I, I didn't, in all honesty, I, I didn't, social media wasn't what it is now when I started back in 2016, this YouTube channel. So it really wasn't being utilized that much for business. And now obviously everyone utilizes it for business, but actually it was in real infancy and that, that I never imagined that would happen. And then that's, you know, fast forward five or six or seven years, actually, where am I? Six years. Yeah. And now we're, you know, just in a completely different world of, of social media marketing. So yeah, it's evolved. It's evolved naturally, but I th you're right. The core of it was that I, I loved, I loved it. I loved showing up. I loved meeting people through it. And I loved having those conversations with, with a much wider audience than just the immediate people in my office or, you know, my friends. So for me, that was a great way of actually bringing in all of those additional viewpoints and having those, those wider conversations. And we will, as you say, later in the conversation, get into this increasingly complex world of work 
situation that we find ourselves in. Some would say post-pandemic. I would suggest that the world of work was moving anyway. The Gen Z uh, community, who you, I know, have a particular focus upon, I think did have different expectations of careers and work. And the pandemic may have accelerated the process, but nonetheless, I think some of those signs were, were there pre-pandemic. But what I just want to focus on for um, a few moments, if you don't mind, Chris, is your social media presence and the fact that I'm able to comfortably describe you as a social media influencer. And you've mentioned there that you were an early adopter um, of using social media as this powerful tool to start to present different ideas, have conversations with a wider audience. How were you able to build that law and broader personal brand? Were there any things that you did that now you look back and think that was a really smart thing to do? And perhaps more importantly, what mistakes did you make during those early days of uh, getting into the social media world? Yeah, so I started back in, I started shooting videos back in 2016, actually. And the reason I came up with with using YouTube was actually because I had a, I was doing a lot of face-to-face -face mentoring of students and I basically ran out of hours in the day. Once I qualified as a solicitor, there's only so many hours that you can dedicate to mentoring people and actually giving them the best of you, really. So I was kind of at the limit for that. But obviously I wanted it. I wanted to give more back. I wanted to coach more people. And a good friend of mine at the time had a YouTube channel and she was vlogging about Disney and doing travels, you know, totally unrelated. But I looked at these videos and these videos were getting sort of thousands, you know, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of views. And I thought this is a way to reach a much wider audience. I can give up, you know, an hour of my time to shoot and edit a video, which I thought was going to be an hour. It's actually significantly longer than that. But I thought, you know, actually, instead of mentoring one person, I can potentially reach, you know, thousands of people in that time and for me that's just so much more rewarding to be able to reach more people and I looked on YouTube and there was absolutely nothing like it on YouTube YouTube hadn't really been cultivated for education as much then YouTube was for music videos and maybe like beauty blogs and travel things or if you're breaking a dishwasher you know it was all that sort of thing that you search for on YouTube but people weren't really engaging with it as they are now now it's an alternative to TV but it, it wasn't like that back in the day and there was nothing really like I thought, okay, probably people have tried it, it doesn't really work. But if it helps a handful of people, let's just give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? There's no financial investment. I just videoed on my iPhone and, you know, spent a few hours in the afternoon. I, I grossly underestimated how long it takes to plan, shoot, edit, upload and be happy with a YouTube video. Uh, it was more like a day than an hour. But nevertheless, once... Once views started coming in, which was very slow, it was a trickle at the beginning because it was a, a new market. Now you start doing it now, you've automatically got a body of people who are searching for legal careers advice. So you're automatically going to get a few more views now than you used to. But at that point, nobody was searching for legal on, on YouTube. So naturally, it took a while. And I knew that would happen. And I said from day one, I'm going to do this for a year and see where I am because I knew it would take that long to, to get any traction anyway. So I did it for about three months and there was a lot of time of of kind of getting a handful of views who I know were mostly my mum and dad watching it on repeat. Uh, <laughs> and I had a couple of comments from, from people saying, you know, you've only got 10 views on this video. It's basically one step away from talking to yourself, uh, which is a bit of a blow because it was true. <laughs> uh, and then a legal publication actually called Legal Cheek picked it up and ran it. And, you know, kind of after that, it then it then picked up really. And I think I, I've probably told this story before, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of where it really, really stemmed from. Um, in terms of kind of 
peaks and pitfalls. I suppose well, it, being an early adopter was one. I didn't really know anything about social media or the values of being an early adopter at that point. It just, you know, it seemed like, you know, I want to reach more people. Here is the internet. Let's merge these two things together and, and see what happens. And that was definitely, that was definitely a, a you know, a, a great win in hindsight being that early adopter. But, and that's, that's also been the case for other platforms that I've gone on to. The one, the earlier I've gone to it, the easier it's been to kind of grow and establish your brand and establish yourself as the kind of leader in that market for that brand. Because a similar thing happened on TikTok. When I launched my TikTok in lockdown, there were virtually no lawyers. I've, I've got the handle, the TikTok lawyer, because that because there were that few lawyers. Nobody had taken that handle, which now seems, you know, the, the first thing that would be taken. And that's exactly what happened. So I started that. And again, no one was talking about law. People were doing, you know, what it was like in lockdown. People were doing dances. And, you know, that's what it was. And I said, well, hold on. You know, I think we could probably use this in the same way that I've used YouTube. Why not? And that's exactly what I did. And I, I'm now just under 50K on TikTok. So and being definitely being that early adopter really helped. And actually, again, it didn't take that much time. And if it, if it had been a flop, it wouldn't have been that much of a waste of energy. So I kind of, you know, when you see a new platform where you see, you know, a new trend, if it's if it's not going to cost you a great deal of time or money to try it, then actually the benefits of doing so, of being an early adopter are massive in the long term. And so sometimes it's a benefit. TikTok obviously did take off and now it's, you know, one of the most popular platforms for social media. And then there are other things like Clubhouse, which didn't take off so much. But again, it's not going to cost you that much to invest. Some things will be a great use of your time. Other things won't be. But actually, it's better to try everything because the benefits of if it if it is one that really takes off are huge in terms of your reach and your audience. It's much easier to reach a, a bigger audience early on. I think in terms of mistakes that I made, I think one of the things I did early on on YouTube was talk about the things that I wanted to talk about rather than talking about the things that my market were necessarily interested in. And that took a bit of time to work out because these things would happen. These developments in law would happen. And I'd be like, oh, we've got this precedent decision on that. This is huge. This is going to change the way lawyers operate forever. And it was massive news. And this is this is critically important. And I'd post that and it would just get no engagement. And and what you what you forget, I suppose, is that no, you're, it, this isn't school. You can't force people to learn things. You have to pitch things in such in such a way that appeals to them, and in terms that they are interested in. And actually, there was sometimes a bit of a gap between what I thought was important because I'm a practicing solicitor and I'm in this world, and actually what students think is important because they don't know because they're not in that world. So there are a few times where, and, and there was another time, you know, within weeks of doing that video, I did a kind of, you know, this is what I wear to work video, which for me is like fairly trivial, to be honest. And it got like tens of thousands of views and everyone loves it. And it's shared everywhere. And it, it's one of those things where you've really got to kind of get into the mindset of your audience. And there's not necessarily a quick way to do that other than to just trial lots of different types of content and see what fits and also engage with your audience. I do polls, I do questions all the time. What content do you want to see? Because actually, that's the most important thing. Albeit, if you've got a message that you want to get out there, then you need to be able to do that to kind of satisfy whatever your needs are on social media and whatever reason you're doing it for. But actually, if your goal is is growth and, and engagement, which it is for many businesses, it's actually putting out the content that your audience wants to see, which is far more important than you putting out the content that that you want to create. So you have to kind of find a balance between the two and how to how to work that out. And that's happened. I still do it now. It's happened countless times where I've put something up and thought, this is really great content. This is so good. And it flops. And then I just, you know, I shoot a three second video, which is a, a meme of something, you know, 
taking the mickey out of something I've done at work and it gets like, you know, 100,000 views. And I'm thinking that content's nowhere near as valuable as that thing that I spent days researching and putting together. But it's just, you know, getting to know your audience and, you know, what, what people really want. So that definitely, definitely some trial and error on that one. I think you're being very modest in terms of your social media presence. Yeah. No other reason than of all these things I watch from professionals and business people uh, on social media, and we all use the, the platforms to a certain extent these days, of course we do. But the creativity and the ideas that you come up with for some of your stuff, even if you're not interested in the law or professional services or Dubai for that matter, it's worth watching because it's entertaining. And I wanted to ask you really, where do you get those ideas from? What inspires you to come up and do these fabulous TikToks that will make people watch and share and, as you say, drive that traffic to your platform and to your personal brand? Honestly, it's it, it doesn't happen every day, I'll be honest. I don't sort of naturally have every day wake up with really great ideas. Uh, it comes in sort of peaks and troughs. And sometimes, and sometimes I'm just on a kind of creative drive for two or three days. I'll just be in a really creative mood. I quite often do several videos when I'm in that mood. And, so, and the ideas just kind of come to me during that time. And then sometimes they might not for a week or two, you know, because I've, you know, I'm really buried in my consultancy work, which is kind of less less my creative brain. I think it's different kind of sides of your brain that are ignited by different types of, of work. And I think watching other people definitely inspires me. So I spend quite a lot of time on TikTok and I, I call it market research so I can justify it. <laughs> but actually kind of seeing what other people have done and seeing what works. I think using a model. So I do, you've probably seen it. I sometimes do these sort of role plays where I sort of play different characters within a law firm or different types of law student in a university. Um, and because uh, I've seen that work for complete, not for law, but for completely other ideas. And I sort of say, actually, I could cultivate that into a legal scenario or I could, you know, I see, I see things that other people have done and I make them fit my niche. Uh, so, and I build them around law, uh, which is the vast majority of my social media is based around sort of legal 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 things legal scenarios legal information but i always try and do something a little bit different with it to try and make it a bit more engaging because typically lawyers don't really have that sort of creative streak to do that a lot of the legal content you see out there will just be people kind of talking to a camera and i, and I do that but i always kind of try and make it a little bit fun and actually there's a lot you can do with it and a lot of it does come from actually seeing as i said seeing what other people have done and saying actually i could i could cultivate this into a legal scenario and make it quite funny and I often credit people and I say, you know, credit was given by, you know, I did sort of like a, a you know, Humunia Chihuahua is, who does these sort of news parodies, uh, really funny. And I did one is sort of in the style of, of him and I credit and, and often that's a good way to get engagement because people recognize the style and they go, oh, this reminds me of that video. You can kind of see where you does. And I think, you know, for, le for legal reasons, you do have to credit people if you've kind of copied someone's style. But in some ways, that's a really good way to get additional engagement because people already, already recognize and resonate with that style of video. So I think as long as you kind of recognize it, it's a, it's a good way of drawing people in as well. And you don't just kind of copy them every single day. Otherwise, it's just, you know, you're just ripping someone else off. But I think sort of bringing those elements of what other really famous people do into what you do can be a good way of increasing your engagement. But I think above all, you know, it's really just kind of being authentic is really just saying how you feel uh, and talking about issues that you feel strongly about 
is and being honest about how you feel about those issues as well. I mean, you're very good at this, Frank. You you know, you talk a lot about politics and you talk a lot about things on your LinkedIn. And, you know, you always say what you think. And I think that's really important rather than trying to say what you think your audience wants you to think or what you think your potential client base might want you to say, because you lose a sort of human element. And now I think when you're talking about business, particularly people, people buy from people much more so now than they used to. People used to buy from the name above the door, but actually that counts for less and less these days. And it's more about the no like and trust factor in turn, which determines who people want to work with. So you really need to get that across in your social media, you know, really need people to feel like they know you, make them like you, and have that trust factor, which comes partially from your, you know, your credentials and, you know, what, what you've done and your place in the market. But it also comes from sort of showing up regularly and giving your honest opinion. That does breed that trust as well. So I think it's it's really, really important to show that human side and that honesty to build up that that know, like and trust factor. And the other thing I was going to ask you about, Chrissy, and I often get asked this um, because I, I'm very comfortable in terms of presenting. I might not be good at it, but I'm comfortable at it. Yeah? Um, so I can stand up in front of an audience, don't feel particularly nervous. I don't usually need any notes. I certainly don't do verbatim speeches. So I'll go off bullet points from time to time. And when I, I've been asked, you know, well, where did you learn? to present where did you learn to do media interviews uh, the honest answer is i've never had any training whatsoever in, in, in that area but then if i go back into my days as a, in school which obviously was only about 20 years ago chris um then i did do drama and although i never took drama particularly seriously if i'm honest there was, there was a, a reason for me often to do drama and have nothing to do with taking to the stage as a career. Um, but I do think that that helped. And I just wondered whether you'd had any experiences, even if it was back in school and college, that have helped you in regards to the way you present. Because not only have I seen you in terms of your social media presentations, but I've watched videos of you presenting live as well. You are very, very comfortable. You come across really well. There's no stuttering. There's no uh, long pauses or awkward pauses at all. Have you had any formal training or is it a fairly natural skill that you've found yourself falling into? A bit of both. Actually. It's interesting what you said about drama, because I've never had any formal training. I've never had any coaching on public speaking, nothing like that at all. But I did do drama when I was a child as well. I mean, I can barely remember it. But I suppose when you're a child, you're at that stage where you're a bit of a sponge, aren't you? And there's probably some latent memory back in there where I remember kind of how to breathe or perhaps sort of timing. I, I don't know because I can't consciously remember it, but it's possible that somewhere in my subconscious, I remember some of that training. And I suppose you can never really know what, what you've carried with you deep in there. But I did do a bit of that. And I was in a couple of school plays. Again, we had no formal training about, you know, in that, you know, it was just, yeah, OK, you'll you'll do for Oliver Twist here. Come and read these lines. <laughs> so there wasn't any formal training around that. But I have I have. And I, but I suppose what also that ties into is the fact that I was on stage when I was a child. So I got used to kind of being on stage and the lights and being surrounded by people. And I got accustomed to that quite early on I did a couple of pantomimes as well when I was a kid so albeit I suppose I separate those two things because that was a very different experience to what I do now and I certainly wasn't talking in an expert capacity and I think that adds a little bit of nerves that that playing a character is often a lot less nerve-wracking than having to be yourself 
So you can go up there, you can read these lines and you don't really, you know, people aren't judging you really because you're not playing you, you're not being you, but putting yourself on a stage and talking about things that you're passionate about, things that you're, you know, supposedly an expert in. Um, but no doubt you've got that imposter syndrome, which always says, am I really an expert in this? Did they really mean to ask me to speak on this stage about this? Do I even know what I'm talking about? That element does create that extra layer of nerves, I think, which is sort of another process that you have to learn to get used to. And actually, it, it, that, that only really takes practice. For the first few times, I mean, I've probably I've probably done 100, you know, public speaking speeches now, I imagine. But for the, you know, for the first probably 20 or 30 of those, probably even 50 of those, I, I was a lot more nervous and I did stutter a little bit, or even if you didn't notice, you know, my throat was tight and I felt very uncomfortable, even though you might not have noticed. And now I do feel a lot more comfortable, but that only came with practice. There was no real fast track for that. I did, uh, there were a couple of things which have kind of stuck with me that people have, have said to me. Uh, one, one guy said, when you start to feel those nerves, instead of feeling like they're nerves because you've got to do something really big and really important and there's a lot of people out there staring at you think of that feeling those nerves as your body preparing itself to be the best that it can be and actually just that mindset around you know you know that feeling you get that tingle and your breath starts to shorten a little bit and you can feel it and you know what the nerves feel like and just changing your mindset around what that means to you was different and that started to get me excited. I go, okay, well that feeling's here. That means that means I'm in the zone. That means my body is ready for this and I'm happy about that. And now if I don't have it, I'm almost worried, you know? So I, I look at that as like the key indicator. Those nerves are the key indicator. This is going to go well, but I'm prepped and I'm ready to deliver what I need to deliver instead of taking that as a sign of, oh God, I'm about to do something terrifying. And it sounds it sounds basic, but obviously your mind is incredibly powerful. So the way you react to those feelings and those thoughts changes completely how you know what you go on to deliver. So I've now changed my mindset around that, and I'm like, okay, good, the nerves are here. That means that means it's going to be okay. And I sort of want to ride that wave and go, this is great, instead of going, oh god, this is terrifying. So it's it's a weird. Way. I'm sure it won't work for everyone, but actually that has that has really made a difference for me. Kind of getting excited when those nerves hit, rather than sort of freaking out, which is what I used to do. So, yeah, it's just practice, though. It's just practice, practice, practice. The more you do it, you know, the easier it becomes and you start, you know, you don't notice how many people are in the room. I think that Legal Geek one you, you were talking about earlier, I think there are about 2000 people in the audience and several more thousand online. But it, you just, you know, you don't think about it. It doesn't matter what you're used to. It doesn't matter whether there's 10 people in the room or 10,000 people in the room. It, you know, it's all part of the same thing, but it's just getting used to that feeling. Yeah, well, I should say you've got uh, experts. Uh, written all over you as far as uh, presentations are concerned these days. So if you are nervous, then it certainly doesn't show. We're going to get into the discussion about Gen Z and, as I said earlier, the new complexities of the new way of working. But the final point I want to make before we have a very short break uh, is we'll stick with social media for a moment. You talk very much about the positives that you've experienced through social media, building a brand, getting a great following, developing friendships, which is fantastic. Uh, but last time you and I met, which was probably about a year ago now, incredibly, uh, we had lunch in that fabulous place that is uh, down by the, the canal side there. Um, what's It's not called Restaurant Bar and Grill. It's called Bank, Bank. in Birmingham, which is owned by the same people as, as have Restaurant Bar and Grill in, in Liverpool. Um, and we were talking about Dubai. I was asking you about the place and the experiences that you've had there. But then 
we start to talk about some of the the, the challenges that both you and I get sometimes on, on social media. Now, as somebody who's been a politician in a past life, it sort of comes with the territory. It's it's never again a bit like public speech. It's never really bothered me. In fact, I quite enjoy people giving me a bit of stick from time to time. Um, but if you're not from that world, and actually all you're doing is going on social media to give advice, okay, yeah, of course, commercially promote yourself as well. But I remember you saying to me you'd had some negativity because you've gone to Dubai, UK was in, still in lockdown, uh, and some quite nasty comments about, you know, you tried to almost show off because you were in another part of the world. Um, now, I think it's strange, this trolling that some people feel the need to, to undertake. But what's it like being on the opposite end of that? Mm, I think it's definitely, again, got better with time. The first few times it happened, I was very lucky at the beginning in terms of people were generally supportive, apart from the old comment about talking to myself. Uh, generally, people were quite supportive and I didn't really experience it until I'd had the odd negative comment. And, you know, sometimes things don't get interpreted the way you want them to online. But I hadn't really had that much negativity. And D Dubai was the first time that I really had that negativity. And I think what bothered me about that particularly was that I have quite an engaged audience, people who I feel like I know, they feel like they know me. And so when I was getting negativity from people who I know had sort of been supporters for the last five years, that bothered me a lot more than a comment from some random person who's, you know, I've never met, has probably stumbled yeah. across this post, having no idea who I was. And that's quite easy. It's quite easy to compartmentalize. You know, my sort of view on that is if, if they don't know you personally, don't take it personally because everything is taken out of context by someone who doesn't actually know you. And it can be read in a totally different voice, in a totally different way. And by someone who is completely outside of your circle, you know, has no idea what you're talking about and, and doesn't care about it. So generally, if it, you know, if someone I don't know personally, I don't take it personally, it's easy to compartmentalize that stuff and just say this is some random, you know, keyboard warrior who probably sits and does this to everyone. And that's, that's quite easy to park. But when it's sort of people who you know, who you feel like you know, if you've never met them personally, you know they've been showing up for you and supporting your content and they know you. And then when they sort of turn up and say, you know what, and it was things like, you know, Chrissy, I've followed you for so long, but I just can't follow this anymore. And I'm really disappointed. And, it, you know, that that stuff really kind of hurts a little bit more, I think. And probably proportionately, it wasn't that much. But because it was a handful of comments from people who I really valued, because people who followed me for a long time, I really, I really value that connection. And I think that really bothered me. But I think it was a combination of, of things, really. I think, I mean, the, during the pandemic, I think, you know, mental health was at an all time low for particularly much more so for people who are living in the UK and in Europe and who were in significant lockdowns, people who'd, you know, lost people. And I think there was just a lot of reaction to that, people being in a really dark mental place. And, you know, seeing seeing me who I and, you know, in all honesty, you know, I had ups and left. I had gone to Dubai and things were much more normal over there. And there was just this sort of sense of resentment, which probably wouldn't have normally happened if people were just out and about living their day to day lives. There wouldn't have been this sense of I don't know whether it was jealousy or, or what, but I, I think it was, you know, this sense of you are in such a different, you know, we're all here kind of in solidarity going through this together in the worst times and you're off doing something completely. You kind of escaped. 
But, you know, on the flip side, I had people going, you know what, Chrissy, if I was you, I would absolutely have done that. If I was on my own, had no ties, of course, like this is, you know, you know, that that's what you do. Why, why on earth would you not do that? Of course, there are some people who can't move because they've got families, they've got jobs that they can't leave. And that's understandable. But most people said, of course, if I was you, if I was in your position, I could leave. Of course, I would have done. And there was no resentment in that. So I think a lot of people who had the negativity around it were people who were in very dark mental places, had probably struggled perhaps more than most in the pandemic. And I couldn't possibly have known what was going on in their lives at that time and what was going on in their minds. And I can totally understand why people didn't want to see what I was doing. If they really wished they could be doing that and they couldn't be for whatever reason, then I can understand. I mean, my view on that is if you don't like someone's content, just mute them, unfollow. Stop the follow, I exactly. Yeah, I, I don't, I yeah. personally don't think there's ever any need to unleash negativity on other people. You know, it's not your place to do that. They're doing their thing. They're happy. That's up to them. You don't need to comment on that. Just if you don't like it, just unfollow. Then it doesn't affect you anymore. I've never really seen the need to sort of unleash negativity on other people, even if I really don't like what they have to say. Um, but, you know, it was it was a really dark time. And I, I've since had some of those people come back now as followers uh, who were obviously going through a really difficult period and it just wasn't what they wanted at that time. So I was fairly kind of forgiving. So I did speak to friends who were in the UK who said it's just dire over here. You know, people are just in really awful states. We don't know how long this is going to go on for, you know, and I totally appreciated that. So I think in that at that period of time, I was able to kind of compartmentalize a bit and say, because I was living a very different life. I couldn't, when you, when you live in the UK, you can sort of pick up on the vibe, you can pick up on the feelings and maybe I would have posted slightly different content. I don't know. But when you're so far removed from it, you do kind of lose a little bit of, of what the feeling is in, in the UK. And most of my audience was UK followers. So, you know, it, it was it was a difficult one to manage because I had a huge bunch of supporters who were like, yes, we're living for this content, Chrissy. Like we're stuck in our houses, but we absolutely love seeing you out and about doing this stuff. Like, please show up every day. And if I didn't, they were like, where are you? We need this. And then the other you know, section of people who were like, this couldn't be further from what we need, you know, but you can never please everyone, you know, and I don't think you should ever try to. I think that's the problem with social media. You're exposed to so many, so many people. And that's not really actually how, you know, humans fundamentally were designed. You know, we're designed in tribes. You know, we're designed to find our tribe. You don't need to appeal to the other 10 tribes. You actually just need to find the tribe that you're a part of. And as long as everyone supports each other there, that's fine. But this world of social media has kind of opened you up to everyone. And, you know, we were never designed to appeal to everyone. We don't have to. But because you're exposed to that many people, you want to please everyone. And that sort of is where the sort of toxic cycle comes from when you don't please everyone is you kind of, you know, you you kind of have a go at yourself for not doing that. But, you know, you're never going to. You're just absolutely never going to please everyone. And you just have to focus on finding your tribe of people, your tribe of supporters and make sure that, you know, you're on a level with those people. And you just don't worry too much about everyone else. That's always going to happen. And you know, particularly see you see trolls increasing the more exposure you get on a post, you know, the more it's almost directly proportional to the amount of trolling you get. If 100 people see it, you might not get any. If 1,000 people see it, you might get one. If 100,000 people see it, you're probably going to get five or 10 negative comments because it pushes it further and further outside of your tribe. So that's just the proportional effect. And videos where I've had like over a million views, you know, there's a lot of negative comments on those. But for that reason, because of the kind of exponential growth that that's, you know, it just multiplies proportionately so I've learned to kind of just say you know that's just that's just law of averages you know that's just the numbers that, that does that it doesn't mean that that many more people dislike the content it, it's just as exposed to proportionally that many more people so yeah I've, I've learned to kind of 
park it and say this is just life on social media it doesn't mean people hate you it doesn't mean it should affect your kind of self-value or self-worth it's just you know that's what happens when you expose yourself to millions of people who don't know or care about you just happens like that that's an incredibly balanced commentary on social media trolls and (laughs) and we can add generosity of spirit to your many attributes christy um listen we're gonna take a short break after then, um, we'll be talking to Christy about what she's really uh, getting stuck into at the moment. And, you know, the businesses I'm speaking to are currently telling me how difficult it is to attract talent, to retain staff. They're wondering how they can engage with uh, their teams. And Chrissy has one or two fantastic tips and some insight into those very key crucial issues. Stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Downtown in Business is the fastest growing business organisation in the UK. Working with decision makers from over a thousand companies across the country in Liverpool, Lancashire, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Cheshire, Wolverhampton, Newcastle and London with more locations to follow. Through an extensive and exciting events programme and through our social media platforms, we connect our members with other businesses who can help them grow. And we engage with senior politicians and officials at local, regional and national level to promote business-friendly policies. To join Downtown in Business, please visit our website. That's all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Why don't you get involved? with the fastest growing business organization in the UK. Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. I'm really excited to announce that in March 2023, we'll be hosting a national conference, Changemakers Live, at the Knowledge Quarter, Liverpool, at the Spine Building, the award-winning Spine Building. And we'll be welcoming a host of fabulous speakers, including the Shadow Health Minister, Wes Streeting, the mastermind behind HS2, Lord Andrew Adonis, Ryan Wayne, who's the head of policy at the Tony Blair Institute, Colin Sinclair, the chief executive of the Knowledge Quarter, Jessica Bowles, she's the strategic director for property giant Bruntwood, and social media guru, and so much besides, Chrissy Wolf. They'll be among a number of speakers who'll be talking about the challenges and hopefully coming up with some solutions to those challenges that we all face in the business community in 2023, and no doubt we'll face those challenges beyond. Join us for what we think is going to be an amazing day of discussion and debate, where we'll be asking, so, what's the big idea? Go to all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com to book your tickets today. Welcome back to part two of episode five, the new series of the Downtown Den podcast. I'm in conversation with Chrissy Wolf. We've spent the first part of this conversation talking about her fabulous social media presence, how she's developed that, and how she has, as I said in the introduction, become very firmly a social media influencer. Uh, But in this second part of our discussion, we're going to concentrate on the thing that's really been exercising Chrissy uh, over the past year, possibly a little bit longer, 
And it's about challenges that we as business owners and certainly the downtown network are increasingly uh, discussing and coming up against. And that's how to uh, attract good staff, retain the staff that you have, engage with your teams and start to try and appreciate and understand what people now want from their workplace. And I'm going to start with what will sound like either a daft question to you or maybe a simple one, because this term that I keep hearing, Gen Z, is being bandied about. Please give me a definition of what Gen Z is. It's a good question. I wish I had a, a, a sort of succinct definition for you. I, I sort of have mixed feelings about these terms of generations because it actually isn't necessarily about when you were born and putting a label on you to categorize you based on where you were born, which is loosely what it is. You know, Gen Z is, is technically, I think, from the early 90s to the sort of mid noughties birth. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Gen Z and then millennials is sort of I'm very on the edge of the millennial bracket. That was the kind of bracket before that. So, you know, we're talking about sort of the, you know, the late teens to early 20s to, to mid 20s is really the sort of people we're talking about when we talk about Gen Z. But yeah, I'm sort of not really a fan of kind of categorizing someone based on the year they were born in because there's so much more nuance to talking about people's personalities. And it just kind of feels like an oversimplification to say Gen Z want this or millennials want this. I mean, clearly that's a misnomer because every every human is unique. But I think when we talk about these sort of tendencies and we talk about sort of attitudes, I think there is, I think particularly when we talk about this sort of Gen Z bracket, there's a lot more of a kind of unionization of this group of people than perhaps we've seen in other generations. And I think that's where this empowerment comes from. And no doubt that comes from the internet generation. That generation have come up through the internet where they've been able to have contact and communication with thousands of people from, from day one, which means they can congregate a lot easier. Uh, and actually they can find people, lots of people with similar views. And I didn't have that when I was growing up. You know, I thought things, but the only people I had to discuss them with were the people I was in school with or people I went to university with. So there was never this sense of sort of mass adoption which you can get from social media by putting your view on there and then a thousand people jumping on it and say, yeah, we all agree. That's sort of where this sort of unionization has come from. I think that's where that's partly, I think, a factor for this sort of whatever you want to call it, great resignation, great reshuffle, great attrition. And of course, we're not just seeing it in that generation. We're seeing it in others, but it's primarily when I've been studying this, particularly in the legal sector, and I've looked at where the most movement is, and it's at the most junior ends of the market. So sort of the the trainees and the newly qualified lawyers up to the lawyers who were sort of three to four years qualified. And then it drops off a cliff, basically, when you go to people who are, who are more experienced than that. So it is this sort of younger generation who sort of seem to be sort of driving this, you know, empowerment piece that like we can just move actually let's not stay where we're not getting what we want we just move and we'll get more money and we'll get more you know and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail in a minute about, about what they want but that seems to be more of a generational thing that sort of driver to just move and I think as I've said a lot of it has a lot of it's been caused by the pandemic in terms of the ease of movement I think people were kind of thrown out of their comfort zones 
you know, pushed into this remote landscape where they could take phone calls from recruiters where they couldn't, you know, and they've, they're not in that routine where they go into the office every day. And it's, it was off putting to think about changing that routine and changing jobs. Whereas if you're all you're doing is, you know, sitting behind the same computer, but you're, you're moving from one email address to another, that's effectively all it is now when you move jobs, you know, yes, you have to go through that onboarding process, etc. But it's, it's far less of an upheaval now in the remote landscape to move jobs than it is when it was when you had to actually move offices move companies it felt like a much bigger thing to do and now it's much easier so I think that's certainly a driver for it that it's become practically easier to move but I think in in principle you know the kind of the younger generation the sort of junior gen z millennial I'm just going to call them junior generation because it's kind of an amalgamation of just sort of the younger end of the market really than specifically gen z I would say but I think they're just more they're more in tune with what they want, I think, because, again, they've had a lot more exposure to information. Again, when I was growing up, I went I was actually home educated by my mom. I went to school for a few years and I went to uni and I very much didn't really have a chance to explore what I wanted. I only had a few things that were open to me, which were effectively, you know, what my educator was teaching me. And these are the subjects that are open to you to choose one. I didn't really have I didn't know anything other than what was put in front of me. I didn't have that choice. But growing up with the Internet, I mean, you're faced with a million things to do. And the heroes of that generation are the likes of, you know, Stephen Bartlett, Grace Beverly, who started these businesses from their bedrooms at, you know, the age of 17, 18. You know, the heroes of our generation were people who had followed very traditional paths. You know, they were sort of world leaders and those sorts of people. But actually, the sort of heroes of that generation are people who, you know, done something totally different and haven't followed that traditional career path. I saw a stat the other day which said 87 percent of Gen Z want to be entrepreneurs. And I thought, what? Because when you when you look at the when you look at the traditional definition of entrepreneur, right? So, on, you know, well, when you if you if you're an entrepreneur, you have an idea that that's where it comes from. You don't think I want to be an entrepreneur. You come up with an idea that you want to make into a business, and that makes you an entrepreneur. So, where's this notion come from? They don't have the ideas, but they want to be entrepreneurs. What? Let's let's pick that apart. What does that mean? And what do you think an entrepreneur is that makes you want to be that? And it's undoubtedly these sort of role models. Um, of these entrepreneurial types who are, you know, they, they, you know, they've got millions of followers on social media, you know, and they're kind of creating, they're sort of creating these markets and these followers for themselves that, you know, people want to be just like them and living that life. And I think that's where that comes from, that we want to be an entrepreneur, rather than the traditional thing, which is, okay, we've we got to have the idea first, because that that's what makes you an entrepreneur. It's not about, you know, being an entrepreneur. What's the idea? So it's a totally different way of, of looking at that. And and I think there's a number of different things. I think people want flexibility over their own time. They they want to be seen more than ever. And I think that's a function as well of the Internet generation and being in a saturated market where everyone's fighting for followers and likes and engagement. That feeling of wanting to be seen and wanting to be valued for who you are is much more important to that generation. I think, you know, people wanting to work with purpose and value. And again, I was talking about this yesterday, actually in terms of the semantics around some of these definitions, because when Gen Z say they want to have purpose, someone in a senior leadership position might have a very def different definition of what that is, in the same way that entrepreneur has a very different definition 
for you know someone in a senior leadership position than someone in in Gen Z, for example. So I think there's a lot of miscommunication, which is why this happens. There's always a generational gap, I think, but this generational gap is particularly huge. I think when we're talking about senior leaders in corporates and Gen Zs who are kind of coming through, there's just this mismatch in in dialect, in you know the way they look at the world that I think is where we're struggling. And I sort of sit in the middle of this because I consult for. Yeah, I was in a large corporate organization. I now sit and advise the boards of large corporate organizations. But then on a day-to-day basis, you know, I'm on TikTok and Instagram engaging with with Gen Z about about, you know, legal careers. So I kind of sit in the middle of this, you know, where I've got kind of one on one side and one or the other. And I'm sort of trying to work towards how we can speak the same language, which is sort of where I come in on the consultancy piece. It's like this is where we can merge these languages. And it, it's it, there's no one size fits all approach is is the reality. I think every and that's you know why I'm very big on having human centric organisations and really talking to employees and listening to them about what they want and having open conversations because a lot of the conversations in corporates when you talk to your staff are okay, going okay so how when, when do you want to put in your partnership application or when do you want to put in your promotion application I'll, I'll look at that for you and that's sort of the offering and actually you know the question is what do you want to do with your life where do you see yourself next year that's the question you should be asking because not everybody's in it to climb the partnership track not not everybody's in it to kind of reach those dizzy heights some people are working for you because they really love the team some people are working for you because they like the purpose of the business it's not necessarily about progressing up that ladder but i think you really need to understand what drives your people on an individual level before you can engage and retain them rather than kind of having these blanket policies which i think corporates often introduce to saying, okay, well now we're going to have a, you know, a well-being hour and that's our sort of well-being tick box. But actually well-being looks different to different people. And actually, you know, having an hour of yoga isn't going to be the solution for everyone. And it's really having those open conversations and figuring out and helping people to figure out what that is as well. Because that's one of the things when you have Gen Z coming in is they're very, they're very empowered, but what what they lack is some of the experience and self-awareness to articulate what it is they really want. And I think that's where leadership comes in to actually, and that's what good leaders should be. Good leaders are there to make everyone else better and get the most out of people. And that's where leaders actually need to, to spot that sometimes and actually say, actually, what you're really good at is A, B and C. And we're going to put you in a role where you can maximize that potential because often the genius coming through will sooner leave then they will have a conversation about what it is that they want and articulate that. So I think that can be the challenge sometimes is they're, they're so quick to move on if something's not quite right, that having those conversations, encouraging them to figure out what it is that's wrong and whether the business can work with them to achieve that. But I think that conversation piece and that communication often is really lacking in a, a lot of corporates in terms of, okay, you don't want to be a partner, well, we don't know what to do with you then. <laughs> you don't want to be a partner. <laughs> you know off off you know off you go fine you're probably not for us then and actually that person could have added huge amounts of value to that business in a number of different ways even if they didn't want to go on and be partner and i think it's it's recognizing that skill set because they have huge amounts of skills you know as does anyone but you know they're particularly kind of tech savvy innovative creative they have lots of skills that actually many other more senior generations don't have and they're more you know they're quicker to use those skills and actually so don't just you know dismiss them because they don't want to follow the traditional path of your organization and say, well, if you're not, if you're not going to follow our path then move on elsewhere, you know, that's the point of having those people in your, in your business to drive change and drive innovation and, and make your business 
more relevant to the to the community or customers that you're soon to be serving. You know, you've got to be thinking 10 steps ahead. It's one thing to say, well, nothing, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We're doing well now. But your your generation is going to change. Your consumers and customers are soon going to be this generation. And if you can't engage with them to employ them, how do you think you're going to engage with them to be your customers in five or 10 years time? So it pays to, to do that work now to actually encourage that retention of talent, but also they're going to be your future customers. So you need to understand them now. And and again, as I said, it's not a one size fits all approach. I work with a lot of different businesses and the strategies I use are entirely different depending on, on what it is they're trying to achieve. So it's it's not a it's not a short conversation, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I could give you a quick fix. <laughs> no, it's fascinating though. And as I say, it's a challenge not just within the legal profession across uh, sectors, but I think uh, that traditional model of the professional service, and particularly the law, you know, for some time that's been under threat. I, I remember having conversations probably a decade ago, maybe more, about this introduction of what was known at the time as Tesco, you know, whereby you could set up legal advice shops even if you didn't have uh, a law degree. Uh, and that started to change things for uh, solicitors. There's now uh, a company that we work with, a great company called Excello Law. We're a very different sort of model. The solicitors in their company are almost freelance, enables them to be more flexible in terms of their time, also enables them probably to be a bit more cost effective, uh, but certainly allows them to attract people from other firms who perhaps do have that more traditional approach. And I wonder, Chrissy, because you work with so many legal companies across the country, whether you're seeing uh, a shift in terms of attitudes or whether there's still a little bit of that, you know, no, we're going to dig our heels in because this is worth the 900 years and we don't see why we should change. A combination of both, actually, because I remember Tesco Law, which was just coming in, which was the Legal Services Act, which was just coming in as I started to become a lawyer. And this is one of the hot topics, you know, you've got to understand this in case someone asked you about it in an interview. And everyone thought it was reported as this thing that was going to be groundbreaking. It was going to change the way everyone operated. And actually, you know, what I now know about the legal profession is there's a big difference between giving them the tools to change and them changing. You know, incredibly risk averse profession. This is this has been seen in a number of occasions where, you know, some, there has been some huge change most recently with the way solicitors can qualify. And it's opened up all these potential new ways of qualifying and ways that law firms can restructure their training programs and recruitment and have have any of them taken advantage of that. We're starting to see it now, but this change has been coming in for a long time and it, it's only really now that businesses start to take advantage. A similar thing I think happened with the Legal Services Act. In, in fact, it, it could have made a much bigger impact than it actually did, but the majority of firms carried on operating in exactly the same way that they always had, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, so it didn't have as much of a groundbreaking effect as it could have done. And actually those businesses who did take advantage of having the non-law ownership actually didn't really use that to make any material change in their organizations uh you know from they still they had non-law leadership but they still operated exactly the same way as they always had with the partnership model so law isn't always the quickest to take advantage of opportunities to change and i think it's more driven i think everything particularly in law firms and i'm sure in other professional services as well it, it comes from the bottom line it's will react when something starts to hurt it's much more reactive change than proactive change 
rather than saying we can change so let's do this because in five years we're gonna we're gonna be thankful for it it's more like once once we've got a pain point we'll we'll address that but at the moment there's no need to so we're not going to kind of particularly take advantage of of innovating or changing unless we have to but I think particularly during the pandemic, that attitude did shift. We have seen a lot of new businesses popping up. There's a lot of people, like you just said, who have started these kind of boutique consultancy type offerings where people can be self-employed because people want to now take advantage of flexibility and working from home. And I think they almost had that during the pandemic. Then a lot of traditional businesses have said, actually, now we want you back in the office three days a week, or we want you to go back to kind of your normal targets. And and people go on, actually, no, I quite liked the, the life that I had, that flexibility there. And that isn't actually a kind of, that isn't a situation that can be maintained in traditional legal practice. So I know lots of people, myself included, who have opted for the consultancy model because it allows you to kind of be the master of your own time, much more than selling your soul to a large law firm or a large corporate organization, even outside of law. So I think absolutely the pandemic particularly has accelerated that change and it's accelerated people to take advantage of every possible provision to, to innovate. Um, whereas before it was it wasn't taken advantage to wasn't taken advantage of to its full capacity, I don't think. But people are setting up all kinds of things now. It's brilliant. The number of, sort of boutique law firms, boutique consultancies, they, those things are popping up everywhere. And I think that and perhaps that is a function of of the great attrition that we're seeing. Actually, people want different things and people have got now got a reason to kind of set up these alternative models to accommodate people who want lots of different things. Before, when I was growing up, it was just if you want to be a lawyer, your trajectory is you go and work in a law firm and, you know, you, you do this job and your targets are going to be X and this is what your life's going to look like if you want to be a lawyer. Whereas now, I mean, there's a hundred different ways to be a lawyer. I mean, you look at me and I'm a lawyer and you look at my what my life looks like. You know, I'm in Dubai, I'm in Singapore in a few weeks and, you know, I spend half my time on stage. You know, I was sharing a stage with Joe Wicks the other day, you know. You know, my when you look at how my life looks and I've kind of managed to create that for myself and, you know, with the help of businesses who are a bit more innovative, there just is no definition of what a traditional lawyer looks like now. And the more traditional structure of being a lawyer is becoming less and less attractive, particularly to that junior generation. So I think the attraction of retention and talent, that is now driving change more than attraction and retention of clients, I think now. And actually businesses do now have to change their models to accommodate talent more than they have to cater to what, equally considering what their clients want. But I think that is driving change and innovation, actually, as much as anything else right now, trying to get the right talent through the door. And uh, I know from uh, seeing you speak, uh, as they say online, some of the presentations that you've made, I thought it was really a great point you made, actually, that the skills that you require to attract and retain talent are going to be the skills in future that you need. You've just referred to it there, really, in the comments that you've made in terms of recruiting and retaining your customer anyway. So you may as well learn these new tricks now. The other challenge I think that businesses face, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, is that we talk an awful lot about culture, developing a culture, people fitting into the style of business that you want. You know, this is something that we've all worked on for a number of years now. It's not new, but certainly I think over the last five or six years, there's been more of an emphasis on developing that culture. What does it mean to be somebody who's part of the downtown and business team, for example? You know, we have a list of things that we say, okay, there, that's the downtown way as we describe it. And then there's some fantastic books out there, you know, Legacy, which is about the All Blacks and their culture. 
the Barcelona Way, which is a book that influenced me in terms of how they develop that club and business's culture. I just wonder how easy it is these days, Chrissy, when, as you say, people are looking for flexibility, people perhaps not looking to stay in one business for even beyond three or four years, less than that sometimes, because they want that diversity, they want those different experiences. Are we just wasting our time, money and effort on trying to develop culture these days? It's a really good point. And I was talking about this again yesterday. Uh, I was doing some consulting yesterday on this. And, you know, you could either go, you could go about this two ways. You could go about this and say, right, we really need to focus on attracting and retaining this talent, changing our culture to fit around these, you know, these juniors who want to leave. Or you can kind of accept the fact that you are only going to have these people for two years and get the most out of them while they're there. And that requires two. I actually don't think it requires a vastly different mindset to do that. I mean, this is something that sort of Richard Branson used to talk about, you know, treat people. I can't remember what his phrase was, but, you know, he used to you know, give people the flexibility to leave, but treat them well enough so they don't want to. It was something along those lines. Yeah. I know. And, and I was hearing about it yesterday from a company I was working with and how, you know, they just said, you know, we're really lovely. You know, we're, we're really, you know, fortunate to have you for these two years. But actually, you know, whatever you want to do next, we'll help you figure that out. We'll help you find your next job if you want to. And actually that attitude kind of self-perpetuates them not wanting to leave. And this is the kind of humanity piece where actually if you really care about people as humans and what they want from them and their own happiness outside of what they can deliver to your business, that really makes and that's a culture in itself that, you know, having a human centric business, but actually delivering on that, knowing what that really means. You know, it's not just a set of five values on the wall or on that or on the your landing page of your website. You know, it's really understanding humanity and what it is to be a human and what it is to connect with another human on that level. And all of us have it innately. But I think sometimes we have a habit of kind of separating business from real life and saying this is how we operate in business. This is how we talk to people in business versus how we talk to people in real life. But it's all it's all real life. It's all one life. You know, you don't just neatly fit into one box. And especially now that life is so much more you know, mingled between, you know, you're doing something in your personal life, followed by something in your professional life, all in the same day. There's not like a nine to five block where you're doing work and then you're off. It's all it's all intermingled in the same day. So even now the lines are blurred so much more between what is what is work and what is life, if you're talking about the work-life balance sort of conundrum. So I think it's it's really understanding, you know, it's it really having that human connection with people. And people want to stay with people who they who they feel really value them and really know them. And, you know, any business can support you with, you know, your business goals or, you know, can can appreciate the skill set and what it brings to that business. But it, it, it really stands you out if someone appreciates you as a person. And that's why people stay. You know, people stay for the people. They stay for that connection. Uh, and if you don't have that connection, it's much simpler just to move for a little bit of a higher salary or a slightly better perk. But actually, if you've got that human connection, it's like, well, actually, what's another five grand when, you know, when I could be risking this relationship, this loyalty, this, you know, this, you know, long term, even sometimes a friendship that you've built. Actually, that's a lot harder to dismiss if you if you've really built that. So for me, that's the culture that you should be building. And obviously, there will be tweaks to that. There will be different sets of principles and values that specifically underpin your business. But for me, you know, really at the heart of that has got to be having a human centered business that's in this climate. That is really what's going to stand you apart, I think. I thought it was interesting that you used the yoga example earlier in terms of the way in which some companies have thought that's a great way of ticking the mental health box because I actually interviewed somebody not that long ago who cited 
uh, weekly yoga sessions is one of the reasons they wanted to leave their existing place of employment. So I won't name them because sadly they weren't successful in in getting the job at downtown, not because we're obsessed with yoga, it's not something we embark upon actually. But again, years ago, um, certainly when um, you were started in the legal profession, I guess, the easiest way of getting a culture built up in the business was wine o'clock, wasn't it? You know, drinks after work. And, mm-hmm. and we had a really interesting session in Birmingham actually this week around culture values people. And, you know, there were a number of people in the room who were saying that, you know, they still loved going out for a drink after work, but they'd noticed that there was this new wave of people coming into the business that actually, you know, they did want to work really hard and be committed to the company between the hours of nine to five, but they saw that as the cutoff point and actually work was work, business was business, and pleasure was very much pleasure their time. They wanted to get away. They didn't necessarily see work and the workplace mm. as where they develop friendships and relationships in that way. Is that something else that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think those are the people that you're most likely to lose in a sort of great resignation event like this. The people who really just compartmentalise work as something that pays the bills and that's it, because you're always going to have someone down the road who's, who can pay you more. Uh, and actually, if you're really, if that's really how you see work, that's where you've got people who are vulnerable to move, I think. And I think that's where you have to create that culture that makes people feel like work is a part of their life because that's harder to leave. It's harder to leave behind a part of your life than it is just to leave behind the thing that literally just pays the bills and swap it for something else that pays the bills. But actually, you know, if you're leaving behind if something that actually is a part of you, you know, friendships that you value, a culture that you value, you know, people that value you and, and you value in return, that's much harder to sort of uproot and move from even for a little bit of extra salary. So I think that's what you need to work hard to change that attitude that this is just something you do between nine and five to, to you know, to tick it off and then you go and live your life. Uh, I, I really think that, you know, that's a big part of culture to create something that people actually want to do that. People actually want to be in the office or, you know, in the virtual, whatever the setting is. People want to be there because they get, a you know, they, that fulfills a, a, part, a compartment that they need from their overall life. You know, as I said, work-life balance is all, all, all blurred to me. The way I look at kind of life is it's all one life. And I need, you know, a certain amount of of everything, a few, you know, a few key criteria to be happy. And I pick which one of those I can get from work. And I say, look, I love all these things. Which of these things can I monetize? And that that's affected. It's not it's not about work and life. It's about I do a lot of things in life that I enjoy. Some of them I get paid for and some of them I don't, you know, and that, that's the distinction, I suppose, between work and life. But actually, I've started from the starting point that I'm doing all things that I love and some of them. Are, are form an income some of them don't it's not about saying what am I going to do for work and then when that stops it, it's life it's it's all life some of it pain some of it's not and I think increasingly people are, are looking at things like that particular junior generation have got a much more holistic view because they've also probably got about 10 different income streams which we you know we didn't have you know they they, they may finish at five but that's probably because they got another job to do they go and then they go and they do their drop shipping business or their their or their social media influencers they might want to finish work at five but that's not because they're going to they want to go home and do nothing it's because they've got a lot of other things to do so i think kind of actually making work trying to make work a part of people's life an intrinsic part of people's lives that they value is key to retaining people because it's much harder to leave 
some great tips there and we will get further into that discussion when uh, we see you in March 2023 at our conference in Liverpool. But before I let you go, um, you're an adopted Brummie. Um, as to say, I've met you in the city uh, four years, three, four years ago now. Um, female entrepreneur, businesswoman of the year, that particularly the City of Birmingham Business Awards. I know that you love the city. And it was great to see the Commonwealth Games be such a success um, for the West Midlands, but for Birmingham in particular. And great to see you getting involved as a commentator. So again, through your social media channels, I sort of picked this up. That must have been great fun. Oh, that was just that was just one of the best experiences ever. I think it's not, I mean, how often is it that something like that comes to your home city, to your doorstep? And that was something when I just thought, well, as soon as we got the bid, I thought I have got to be involved with that somehow. I mean, I'm hugely connected to this city. I mean, if you listen to the first episode that we did, I think uh, I think I started crying about halfway through <laughs> because of how passionate I am about Birmingham. So obviously when the Commonwealth Games came, I really wanted to be involved in that in any way possible. And yeah, because I never thought it would end up being as a as an announcer. But uh, yeah, so they just advertised for a handful of of local people to come along because they wanted some kind of local voices in the you know in the commentary. And so I went off and auditioned, had a couple of couple of auditions, and and there I was, ended up as an announcer for the badminton. I, I did used to play when I was younger. You had to have some sort of tie to to one of the sports, obviously, because you sort of have to half know what you're talking about to be able to announce and commentate. Um, but that is certainly something I never thought I would have on my CV. And it is firmly there now on my LinkedIn profile, Commonwealth Games announcer for the badminton. So, I mean, I don't know what, if you didn't know me, you looked at my CV, I don't know what you'd make of it. Um, but <laughs> luckily I don't dust my CV off too often, but that absolutely incredible. The atmosphere being in a totally different, I mean, I've been in a lot of different workplace in my life, but broadcast media is not something that I've I've ever really done very different type of public speaking when you've got surrounded by cameras you've got an earpiece with about 20 people talking in it lights you know it's very different to me sitting at home talking into my phone which is what I normally do when I'm doing social media commentary and things but that environment was definitely something hugely immersive and you just had to upskill in about five seconds flat because that was it you were live we had no training it was like here you go here's your mic here's the camera here's the guy who's counting you down you know go (laughs) so Oh, yeah, on sport, which is not something I've ever really been involved in. So, yeah, totally different. But, oh, yeah, just the most, you know, one of the most brilliant experiences. And the people I met and the kind of things we shared during those two weeks of, you know, very long, very long, very intensive shifts, uh, very high adrenaline. But, you know, being a part of it in, in Birmingham, you know, was just something iconic that I, I don't think I'll, I'll ever be able to replicate. But I'll always remember that. And I think it's fair to say that the games have given the city a boost in confidence you know the community seems to be have a bit of a string in its step I've always loved Birmingham I always thought it was a city that had fantastic uh, potential but perhaps could be a bit more ambitious a bit more aspirational hid its light under a bushel to an extent I think this may act as the catalyst to to turn that around because there's so many great things happened since we rocked up in Birmingham seven eight years ago but those Commonwealth Games were so successful, had such an impact that, as I say, I've noticed a, a definite change within that sort of rummy confidence. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Birmingham is we do, you know, we are very progressive. We have a lot of really inspiring people in the community. We're doing a lot of really progressive, innovative things. We've got a lot of major businesses who are now headquartered here who have done so in the last few years. But I think the thing about Brummies is on on general that we're pretty humble. We don't really shout about how great we are. You know, we do in our little community, but generally we're more about giving back than celebrating our own kind of, you know, telling everyone how great we are. So I think that's, it's not that it's not here. I just think, you know, it's not projected far enough. We all know if you're in Birmingham, you know how brilliant it is. But actually, I think kind of reaching that wider audience, which is something that the Commonwealth Games absolutely did because it brought in people from all over the UK. Uh, and, and further than that, you know, people who were coming in to obviously see the international teams compete. And I think that was really needed because... We're not very good at doing that on our own because we're too humble. But actually, you know, so actually inviting people to come in and say, we don't need to shout about it. You just need to see it. You just need to be here. You need to experience this vibrancy in the community. Because I think the community is, is something that really, really sets it apart. And the volunteers were a huge part of that. We had such a brilliant volunteer you know, team who were absolutely brummies to the core, you know, down to, you know, how they welcomed people, to how they supported people. And that was absolutely the key, I think, to driving the success for Birmingham is really seeing how our local community operates. Because I've I've lived in lots of cities around the world. I've never experienced anything like Birmingham for its community spirit and just wanting to help other people. Uh, you know, you go to London, you don't get that at all. You know, you barely even get a smile from someone if you're in the queue at Starbucks. You know, you keep your <laughs> Starbucks here and you've, you know, you've got each other's numbers by the time you've got to the counter. You know, that's just the way it is in Birmingham. So, and I think actually bringing people, there's no way of explaining it without bringing people here to experience it. You just have to experience it. And I think that's what the Commonwealth Games did really well is give people the experience rather than just shout about it. Because I think that's that's really the only way you can understand Birmingham is if you experience it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was a fantastic uh, fortnight, but as I say, we've enjoyed uh, a fantastic seven, eight years uh, in the city. And we always say, uh, and it's true, that it's the friendliest, most welcoming city that, that we've ever rocked up in. I mean, we get you know great business out of all the places where we work and we love our members dearly wherever they come from. But it's the Brummies that really took us to... Uh, to heart and and have really given us uh, a huge amount back. You've said it there yourself, Chris, you know, people are so willing to say, how can we help? Mm. Uh, And I think although that does happen in other places, of course it does, and there's a lot of collaboration and cooperation in Manchester, in Liverpool and Leeds, but I think you just get more of a sense of that in Birmingham. We had a previous episode, actually, in this series, uh, of the Downtown Den podcast, Ed James, who uh, you, you will know very well. Yeah. Uh, and again, Ed, an adopted brummy, uh, but similar stories to yourself, you know, being around the country, but never felt at home until he landed in Birmingham. And I think that's something that all of us, whether we live there or whether we just work there on a regular basis, can all relate to. Yeah, I always find myself back here. This is definitely my base, even though I pretty much operate entirely remotely from a laptop. You know, this is always want to be where I want to be, all things being equal. If I don't need to be somewhere else for business, then I will always kind of gravitate back here because this feels like home. Even though I didn't grow up here, my parents are only, you know, down the road in London, not too far away. But this is is always where I come to, uh, you know, all things being equal. So, yeah, obviously developed an, an affinity for it. Fantastic. Chrissy, thanks for joining us once again in the downtown town. I think 
you know, listening to uh, the last hour or so, always a fascinating conversation with Chrissy, of course, but some really new things that she's brought to the party in terms of previous conversations we've had during this series, you know, the way she's been able to develop that social media brand. I think a really mature and I have to say, said earlier, generosity of spirit showing towards those who sometimes are perhaps not as kind on social media platforms as we'd like to see, how she dealt with that negativity in a really positive way. And I think anybody who uses, whether it be Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, uh, you know, some seriously, seriously good tips in terms of how you can get your brand out there, how you can authenticate your message and uh, not as successfully as she has, but certainly uh, build a bit of a following and a bit of a brand. Then we turned into, you know, I describe it as Christie's day job, how to retain and attract talent, what the new workforce is looking for, how you can still, despite all those changes and people requiring flexibility and perperhaps not staying in your business as lifers, develop culture and why that's still important and why it's important to start to perhaps recognize and acknowledge that these days, it's as much about how you treat people as how much you pay them. So some great tips, a great conversation, ending, of course, uh, with, I think, uh, a bit of a reference for Birmingham and a good one at that, and why not? And as Chrissy said, if you've not been to the city, you've not visited Birmingham before, perhaps if you've got a view of the place that isn't as positive as it ought to be, then I can only join her in saying, go and see the place because it's got more Michelin restaurants that you can shake a stick at. It's got the friendliest people on the planet and it's got some fantastic visitor attractions. So get down for a city break. And if she's around, I'm sure Chrissy would be happy to show you about the place. She'll be with us at our innovation conference in Liverpool in March. If you want to follow Chrissy on any of her social media platforms, I promise you, you will not be disappointed, particularly with some of the efforts on TikTok, which I always find to be a great watch. Then you will see in the bio introducing this episode all of the links you need. Follow her abroad, uh, sorry, raw and broader as well. And uh, yeah, just a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Chrissy. Thanks, Frank. It is always a really good conversation. Uh, and uh, I'm really excited about being with you for the Innovation Com Conference in March. But hopefully we'll see each other in person before then. Absolutely. I owe you at the very least lunch. So, yeah, uh, yeah we'll hook up very soon. Thanks, Christy. And that's uh, all from this episode of the Downtown Den podcast. Uh, we'll be back in the next six or seven days with our next episode, which I think I'm right in saying is with the Liverpool legend, entertainer, DJ, all-round good egg, Pete Price. So we'll be back with you then. Uh, as I say, if you've enjoyed listening to Chrissy at this time around, go back to our episode in March 2020 and find out how this journey almost, almost began. See you soon. So that was Chrissy Wolf in the downtown den. And I have to say uh, how refreshing it always is to catch up with her because she's so enthusiastic, full of beans, um, always busy doing something and usually something new. Um, and I think what she demonstrates in that conversation 
there's a number of things that we can all potentially learn from. So, you know, she's somebody who's been very adaptable throughout her years in business. She always wants to look for, seek uh, a new challenge and is more than happy to take herself outside of her comfort zone. Um, and I think the other thing that, as I said, really, within the conversation that was happening with her, a passion just shines through. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, then you're almost 90, if not 100% of the way there in terms of ensuring that whatever you're doing will be a success. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Chrissy will be joining us for the Changemakers Conference, which takes place on the 2nd of March, 2023 in Liverpool. It's a national conference. Tickets are going fast. Please book yours now if uh, you're not to be disappointed. And other speakers alongside Chrissy include the Shadow Health Minister, Wes Streeting, Lord Andrew Adonis, who was the brainchild of HS2, uh, also an advisor to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown when they were Prime Ministers, and to Boris Johnson when he was Mayor of London, actually. And we also have Jessica Bowles, who's the Director of Strategy for Bruntwood at the conference as well. So if you want to see Chrissy live, not just listen to her in the downtown den, and lots of other great speakers as well, as I say, book your tickets for that fantastic conference. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this latest episode in the downtown den. And next week, we'll be back with another top-notch guest. Hope to see you then.